Well, let's start by reading, and then we'll pray. And this morning, as we pray for other churches in our community, uh, on the list is the First Southern Baptist Church over on, um, oh, they're off of uh, 7th, and it's uh, Tom Kilgore is the pastor there. So I'll read if you guys want to follow along, Psalm 7. O Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me lest they tear me like a lion, rendering me in pieces where there is none to deliver. I think, you know, we, we all have felt like that at times, where like if God doesn't intervene, it's like we're undone. And I, this is exactly where David, who's the author of the psalm, is, is at. He's feeling um, pretty helpless, uh, pretty overpowered by his enemies and by the situation that he's in. Um, and so he goes on, he says in verse 3, Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor into the dust. Selah. Rise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the people shall surround you for their sakes. Therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just for the righteous. God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God, who saves the upright in heart. Verse 11, God is a just judge. God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He makes a pit and dug it out, and he has fallen into the ditch which he has made. His troubles shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Let's pray. Fathers, we study... Now, your word together, um, we want to continue to offer worship to you, Lord, by bowing our hearts before you, we are opening our minds and our, to receive what you have for us, Lord, um, so that we may grow um, in, in the knowledge and understanding of who you are, Father, so that we might glorify you by the lives that we live, and Lord, by being honest with ourselves and with those around us, Lord, not only of who we are, but of who you are to us. And Lord, we learn more about you as David writes. In this psalm, God, about your person, about your love for us, and God, about um, the fact that you're a holy and righteous God. And we're thankful for that, Lord. And we're thankful, Lord, that you're also merciful and long-suffering, and we see this as well. Lord, we know you to be a God who loves us. And Lord, as we think about this time of year when you sent your son Jesus as a little baby in a manger, as we remember that, remember why he came and what he came for and how he came, you, God, being... Um, fully God, fully man, coming in the flesh, Lord, to do a work that we could not do, to offer us 
forgiveness of sins as you paid the debt that we owed, Lord. We're grateful. And Lord, we're hopeful and we're encouraged. And Lord, we, we're encouraged not only because of what we've received, but we're encouraged, Lord, because we know that the same gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins has been made available to the whole world, to whosoever shall believe. And Lord, we think of our own loved ones and our friends and our family members, God, who, who are still walking um, in opposition to you. And we pray, God, that you would draw them to you. Lord, that they would repent, that they would know that you're a just God, but you're also merciful, desiring, Lord, that none would perish. And Lord, as we lift up the other churches in our community, today we pray for the First Southern Baptist Church and Pastor Tom Kilgore. Lord, we're thankful he's been in the community for many years, Lord. We know that even before he was a pastor of a church here in Canyon City, Lord, that he is a military chaplain. And so, Lord, we pray you continue to bless him and his family. Lord, we know he struggled with health concerns over the last few years, so we pray that you would heal him or continue to do a healing work in his body. Strengthen him, Lord, for the work that you've called him to. And, Lord, we know that he loves you and loves your word, and so we pray that you give him strength today to teach your word. And, Lord, um, and that, that many would... Um, uh, hear and um, be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, <clears throat> this psalm, according to the inscription, as we read it, we're once again told that it's David who has written that psalm. You can see it there for yourself and, and look. And after reading it, we can see that it is once again a psalm of prayer, a prayer that David offered up to God when he was in a time of trouble. And so the psalm contains a couple of things. It contains both the cry and the anguish of David, as I kind of pointed that out in the first two verses, as we hear David speaking about the, the, the fear that was ahead of him in regards to his enemies. But we also hear the shout of confidence in God's deliverance. And I think that's the case with many of the psalms, and that's one of the reasons why they appeal to us and they appeal to me in that there's always this but God moment. And so even in the midst of this anguish and this pain and the suffering and this doubt and confusion, David cries out in faith and confidence in God for God to deliver and God to deliver him. In this scripture, it also tells us that it's a meditation. This is the first time that this word is used in, um, in scripture, that it's a meditation of David. And the Hebrew word that is used here is shigayon. And, and, and this word... Um, it's only used once in all of the Psalms, and it's only used one other time in the book, uh, in, in all of Scripture, and it's in the book of Habakkuk. And there's, uh, there's a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, um, and on. And I would encourage you on your own time this week to go and read that prayer and understand that, that it's, a, it's, a, it's a prayer of meditation, that, that prayer is classified with the same word that David uses here as a, as, a, as, a, as a psalm of meditation for what we're reading. Now, the exact meaning of the word shagayon is um, kind of debated, but most people think it's used to describe this psalm as a, as a psalm, uh, uh, really just a passionate psalm, a psalm with strong emotion, um, specifically emotions that are tied to someone who's crying out in the midst of their wandering. And um, I think we all have felt like um, we've been wandering at, at, at one point in our lives. And, and we know that, that David was accustomed to that. He had spent many years wandering through the wilderness when he was fleeing from King Saul. 
He had been driven out of his home and everything had been taken away from him. And, and, and so we, we can kind of connect some dots here as we understand this word and what it means. And this crying out is, a, is crying out um, with this, this type of um, shagayon, this type of passion is um, in a time when you feel lost, in a time when you may feel alone. And um, we read that David, we're told that he specifically sang this song. It's a psalm of song, okay? That he sang it to the Lord, they sang it to the Lord in light of the words we're told that Cush, a Benjamite, and we know that Saul was also from the tribe of Benjamin, so there's this connection here, but, but that he had made um, some accusations. He had spoken some things against David, and that's what we're told here. And this is... And, and, and this reference to the words of Cush, a Benjamite who spoke things against David, it takes us back to a time in David's life when he was fleeing from King Saul, when, when David was um, pursued by Saul because Saul was trying to kill him. And this account's recorded um, throughout the book of 1 Samuel. There's a historical record of that. And in the book of 1 Samuel, we're told that David had fled into the wilderness and he was having to hide from Saul who was trying to hunt him down and kill him. And when you do the math and figure out how long Saul was actually, or David was actually wandering through the wilderness, it was a total of 10 years. And, and that's, a, that's a pretty powerful thing when you begin to think about it because prior to going to live in the palace of King Saul, we know that Samuel had been sent by God to David to anoint him as the next king when David still was a young man. And, and David, I think, began to see God's hand on his life when David was taken into the palace and um, was kind of being raised up alongside Saul, part of his family, Saul's son, Jonathan, was one of David's best friends. It was, they, were, they, they considered each other to be brothers. And, and, and David was even given Saul's daughter as a wife. But we know that Saul sinned, that God had forsaken Saul, and he'd taken the kingdom away from him and had spoken that it would be given to David. And, and Saul, even though he hadn't received that direct prophecy, he kind of put some things together because of what God had spoken to him. And he was jealous, and he was losing his mind, and sin was entering in his life. And, and eventually what he did is he drove David completely out of the palace of everything that he had been given and, and everything that was familiar, familiar to him. And David was alone lost, running for his life, and he spent 10 years in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, we're told that after a period of time, that men began to, to come to David, and, and these men that, became to, that began to come to David were men who were desperate. It says that men who were in debt, and, and um, this ragtag bunch of guys, and, and, and these were guys that really needed David's support. So even in the midst of David's own suffering and his own wandering and being alone, um, uh, God brought men to him whom David <laughs> needed to care for. And, and, and um, they ended up, being, it ended up being a good thing in his life, but I imagine in the moment it felt overwhelming. And so year after year after year, um, David wandered and, 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 and perhaps felt, spent time feeling uh, alone in, in many different ways. We know that he was in the wilderness, he was in the mountains, and he was in caves, and, and um, very, very probably challenging time in his life. But um, after Saul had been unsuccessful in um, taking David's life, um, he was convinced that um, the whole nation was against him. 
even his own people were against him and that they were all helping David. This is part of the paranoia that, that Saul was facing. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 22, Saul, like I said, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, even accused his fellow Benjamites. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 22. He, he accused his own tribe, his own people, if you will, of betraying him and conspiring with David. And when Saul addressed these Benjamites in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 22, he was, we see there that he's talking specifically to a group of them who had been serving him as their spies, as his spies. They had a group of men who were going out trying to hunt David down. They were spying and they were reporting back to him about David and about where David was at. And even though these evil men were unsuccessful in tracking David down because God was for David, even in the midst of his wandering, is, is, is we know that, that they began to slander David's name by spreading lies. They were trying to cover their own failures in being able to track David down, and so they would lie to Saul about David and what David was plotting and what David was saying and what the people were reporting. And we know that Saul continued to believe these lies. He just kept building evidence after more evidence to, to harden his heart and to come after David and harden his heart not only against um, David, but against God primarily. And so these lies were spoken by his, by, his, by his spies about David. And of course, one of these Benjamites who was spreading these lies about David, according to 1 Samuel chapter 22, was a man by the name of Cush, who is mentioned here by name in the inscription of this psalm. And because of what this man was saying to Saul about David, we see that David was concerned enough about what had been spoken to cry out to God for deliverance, to cry out to God for vindication. And, and I think it's important, not because, not because um, David was so much worried about his character or his reputation at this point, but we know that in the, in, the, in, the, in the account of David fleeing from Saul and fleeing from Saul is that he would have these opportunities to have a, 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 a kind of a, a distant encounter with Saul. And, and each time David would have this encounter with Saul, he always sought to be reconciled. He hoped to be restored, to be reconciled. He wanted that relationship to be made whole. And these lies that were being spread about him only further motivated Saul to come after him. And so I think that not only the fear of his own life um, being at hand, but also the, 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 um, the fear of no reconciliation ever being um, able to take place was something else that David was was fearful of, something that David was struggling with. And in light of this, we see that this, the, the theme of this psalm is God's vindication. God's vindication of his servants, of his people, and, and, and God's judgment on his enemies. And we can see this in verses 6. You can look there, verse 8 and verse 11, because all three of those verses in this psalm, they speak of God's judgment. And so if you're, you're taking notes this morning, I want to point out, and this is going to be kind of the the outline for how we take and go through the psalm, there are four different judgments that are really being described here. The first is when people judge us wrongly. Probably can never relate to that, right? You ever been judged wrongly? You've done something and someone's taken it out of context. It's not what you meant. It's not what you intended to do. And they've passed a judgment on you. You've been judged wrongly. The second is when we judge ourselves 
honestly. There's a second type of judgment that the Bible talks about and we see here and even spoken by David, and it's to judge ourselves own, uh, honestly, to, to look inwardly, to examine ourselves. And, the, and then the third type of judgment that's being spoken of here in the psalm is, the, is this, this judgment of God. This, this first judgment of God is when God judges sinners, and he judges sinners righteously. That's the thing that David proclaims to us. And then lastly, the fourth and last is this, and I think we all have also experienced this, is that, is that this last judgment, this fourth judgment, is that sinners are ultimately judged by their sin. And, and we all enter into sin at times thinking that um, it's not going to come with any consequence, that it's not going to hurt us or anyone around us, but yet we, we learn all, um, we learn that um, ultimately uh, sin, your sin, our sin will find us out, that sinners are judged by their sin. So back to verses 1 and 2 here of this psalm. In verse uh, chapter 7, or Psalm 7, David writes, and he says, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. And, and then he goes on. So he's, he's making the statement, Lord, I trust you. I, you're my hope. And, and, and maybe perhaps um, David was feeling this because um, he really knew that God was trustworthy. Um, but maybe I think at times also, as we can relate to this, we, we come to this place of putting our trust in God. You, O Lord, I put my trust in um, because there's nothing that I've been able to do about this. And so, remember we talked about last week that coming to trust in God is sometimes a process that we, we go through. And God's patient with us and bringing us through that process. And he goes, save me from all of those who persecute me and deliver me, <coughs> lest they tear me like a lion and render me in pieces while there is still or while there, is, while there is none to deliver. So it's safe to say that we've all, I think, experienced a time when we've been wrongly judged by other people because someone has slandered us or because someone has spread a lie about us. They've said something that's untrue, and other people have believed that lie. And being judged wrongly in those instances is something that can and does take place even if someone isn't spreading lies about us. If they're, even if someone's not slandering our name, we can still be judged wrongly. In fact, judging someone wrongly is something that I think that we have also done to others. Uh, when we begin to think about how maybe that's been done to us, we can also think about how we've done that to others when we've judged others wrongly. And because of this, there's many warnings, I think, given to us in the Bible that tells us how we, got to, how we must exercise humility. It's not that we're not called to judge. Lots of times people in the world will say, you know, we're, they look at Christians and you're like, they'll be like, you can't, you can't judge me. You know, you're not supposed to judge. Christians are so judgmental. Well, there's a difference between judging and being judgmental. And really what people are saying when, they, when they're talking about being judgmental, the word condemnation is probably what is really coming to mind when you're being condemned. That's different than making a judgment. And, and we're, we're called to make judgments. We're called to exercise judgment. It's, 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 it's a right thing to do, but we do so. When we do so, it must be with humility. It must be with this attitude to seek to know the truth. And to exercise caution in doing so as we first examine ourselves before we ever pass judgment on others. And, and if you want to see a, a, a good example or a good um, instruction on that, go to Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus speaks about that there and how to do that. And when these things, but guys, when these things are not heated, when we're not exercising humility, when we're not seeking to, to really know what the truth is, when we're, when we're not first examining ourselves, 
right? When we're not taking heed to these things, what happens is it's easy to make wrong judgments of others. It's, it's real easy to judge others in a wrong way. And the main reason for why, why wrong judgments are often made is because ultimately no one can see into the heart of another person like God can. Furthermore, many people simply choose to believe the lies and the slanderous things that others say without ever checking to see if what is being said is true. That's called gossip, right? And sadly, this was the case for David because Cush and these other Benjamites, when you read the account, they lied about David. And Saul was even, as a result, he was even more motivated to persecute and to pursue David. He didn't care about the truth. And these guys knew that. And they were fueling this fire that had already been lit, this rage against David. And even though David was physically fleeing from Saul through the wilderness, through the mountains, and into caves, we see here that he had fled, I think, to a more important destination as he talks about fleeing to the Lord. And that's a good thing, fleeing to the Lord for refuge in order that he might be delivered. And David did so because he knew that, that if there was anyone who knew the truth about the false accusations that were being made against him, it was God. And that's a good reminder this morning because if we find ourselves in this spot where someone's lying about us, gossiping about us, slandering our name, saying things that are not true, even though no one else may know the truth, guys, more, the most important thing is, is that God knows the truth. And that's who we go to anyway. And because David knew that God knew the truth, what he did then was call out to God for help. And the point is, Saul's judgment of David was false. It was not the truth. And David then trusted in the Lord, trusted that the Lord would protect him, trusted that the Lord would save him because God cares about the truth. God cares about the truth. Likewise, when people falsely accuse us and create problems for us, then we need to follow this example of David, guys. When people lie about us, when they cause problems for us, we need to do what David did. We need to trust in the Lord. We need to trust that the Lord will protect us, will protect us and, and, and save us as we seek to find our refuge in him. Who are we running to? Are we looking just to defend ourselves? Or are we trusting that God's going to do the job of defending us when we, when, we, when we press into him, when we come to him? And in doing so, we trust and know that God not only knows the truth, but God, God, the guys that God cares about the truth. And that he will take care of bringing the truth to light. This is ultimately what we're told. In the book of Psalms, chapter 37, or Psalm 37, verses 5 and 6, it says, Man, commit your ways to the Lord. Trust also in him. Lean, or, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noon day. However, when it comes, when it comes to, to someone who has made a judgment against us, okay, we're called to act a certain way. We're called to exercise meekness, to exercise humility in order to honestly examine ourselves, to see if we're suffering wrongfully. Because lots of times we make things to be a certain way in our own mind when we feel like we're being persecuted in an unjust or an unfair way, and that might not be the case. There may be some truth to what's really going on that we're blinded to. And so we got to see 
if we're suffering wrongly, we need to exercise humility. We need to, we need to examine ourselves as a result of maybe a wrongful judgment. When a wrongful judgment is made, it's a time not only to go to God, but a time to look inward. To see if what has been said has some truth to it, or if we're really suffering because of our own foolishness or disobedience. Remember in 1 Peter, in the New Testament, Peter writes in chapter 3 and verses 13 through 17, and he says this, he says... And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and always be ready to give a defense for anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is within you. With meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as an evildoer, Those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Why? For it is better if the will of God to suffer for doing good than to do evil. But there has to be an examination that takes place to determine if that's true. And so in verse 3, David goes on and he enters into this place of self-examination in the midst of the lies, in the midst of the slander that's going on, even even though it's led to him fleeing for his own life, even though David knows these to be lies, he brings it before the Lord and he says in verse 3, O Lord my God, if I have done this, done what? The things that has been spoken against him, the lies that have been, that have been, he's been accused of. Lord, if I've done this, if there is iniquity in my hand, specifically he goes on and says, if I've repaid evil to him who was at peace with me or have plundered my enemy without cause, Let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust, Selah. So because, guys, we're all prone to to not see things as they truly are, right? Even when we're looking outwardly at at others because we don't see the heart, we misjudge people's motives by by looking at their actions is is if we can agree that we 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 often make mistakes in that way, then we should understand that we make mistakes when we're looking inwardly as well. We're all prone to not see things truly as they are, including the motives and intentions of our own actions. Because of this, we need to always be ready and humbly um, to honestly judge ourselves. That's the second type of judgment. Honestly judge ourselves. And, 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 and when we know that, that um, we're prone to, to not see things truly as, as, as they are, then this honest judgment of ourselves, we have to understand that this also requires us to go to God, right? And it can only be done, because this can only be done as we go to God, as we go before God and ask for Him to reveal the truth to us, the truth about the situation and the truth about ourselves. And, and we need for God, and, and we need um, God to do this because we, all, we have the same heart as those who we're looking outward at. We have hearts that are wicked. We have hearts that are deceitful, hearts that only God can know, and we can deceive ourselves, and, and we often do. But in regards, now in regards to this instance with Cush the Benjamite and what, what he had said about David, which is the basis for this psalm, we, we see that David believed that he was innocent of these words that had been spoken of him, but he also knew this. He knew that he was unqualified to even pass judgment on himself. And this is because God is the only righteous judge. 
We may understand righteousness. We may understand that God is a righteous God. But apart from him, we have no righteousness, right? We can't even judge righteously apart from him. So David, here in verses 3 through 5, look, again, he speaks to God and he says, Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there's any iniquity in my hand. And then he basically says and lists out what I think he, he had heard that he had been accused of. And he says, if it's true, then let me, re, let me get what I deserve. And the only, in other words, the only way for David to honestly to judge himself was to submit this whole situation over to God. And, and um, allow for God, who is righteous, to deal with it. And in these verses, David affirmed his integrity before the Lord, and he asked God, who is the supreme judge of all, to vindicate him because, because his hands were clean. And so, so David still affirms to God what he believes to be true, but he, he, he lays it down at the feet of God. So in that, we see, you got to see, David wasn't claiming to be sinless, but he was rejecting the idea of some kind of moral equivalency between himself and his enemies, and he was, he was claiming this, to be innocent of the crimes that he was being charged of, the lies that were being spoken of him. So the question is not whether David was morally perfect when he speaks in these ways that we read here, but whether he was innocent of some kind of particular slander. And from what we read here in verse 3, it appears that the nature of the charges that were brought against David by Cush was that he had, he had returned evil for good, that someone had done good, and David then returned evil. He took advantage of that situation and exploited it for himself. And then also that he had, he had taken unjustly and without cause and taken up arms against his enemies. And some people think in relationship, as you read this out and, and look at some of the historical accounts and knowing David's position in the in, in the. Um, there in Saul's house is that is that what David was doing was that he was going out on these these raids that he would do and defending Israel as one of the commanders of the, of the in Saul's armies and, and then and then he would go out and then hold back things that were supposed to be for the king for himself and and, and some kind of conclude that's part of that was going on in relationship to how this was connecting to Saul and in light of this David he claims to be he claims to be blameless not only in his motives but also in his actions and we should remember that this is how all of us have been called to live blameless in our motives and blameless in our actions as we live before God and live before others and in Philippians chapter 2 verses 14 through 15 we're told this when it says this do all things without complaining and disputing and I have to be completely honest it's been a hard to do this last year is it not but it's a good reminder, do all things without complaining and without disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Man, if there's not a more applicable verse for the times that we're living in, I don't know what is. Before we move on, I want to point out that even though David was claiming his innocence, we also see by these words that David spoke that he knew that if he was guilty of sin, he was willing to accept God's discipline in his life. And, and we looked at last week's psalm about really what God's discipline looks like. And we'd encourage you to go back and review that, or if you weren't here last week, to listen to it. It's online in regards to, to God's discipline. But in regards to David's dealings with King Saul, David 
knew that he was innocent and that he had been pure in his motives as he he came before the Lord. Remember, when we study out the history of it, we know that David had two opportunities to kill Saul. And he was even being encouraged by his men. And both times, David refused to do so. He refused to take the matters into his own hand. And this is proof enough, I think, that his heart was not filled with any kind of personal malice and desire for revenge, and that he desired to honor God in all that was going on, even though he was suffering as a result of it. And so even if we believe, guys, ourselves to be innocent, if we believe ourselves to be pure in our motives, because we can, right, and blameless in our actions, it's important that we're always willing to honestly judge ourselves whenever an accusation is being levied against us. And so in verse 6, we read on, David, having gone to this place, he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. Again, this word judgment. And at the end of verse 5, when you back back up here, David said that if he had been found guilty, he was willing for his honor to be laid in the dust. And I think he did so because, because he knew David knew this. He knew that God judges all sinners righteously. It's the third type of judgment. How does God judge righteously? How many times? Every time. Always. And he trusted God to do so by defending his honor and his reputation. God will judge righteously. And guys, we can trust that when we ask God to examine the situation, when we're looking inwardly, maybe at things that we feel like we're being judged wrongly in, and go, Lord, did you hear this? And, and then, is, is it true? We can trust that God's going to be honest in the situation. He's going to judge righteously. And if we need to be defended, whether it's honor or reputation, God will do so. And then he'll take action when he sees fit. But I think the greatest evidence that David knew this, that that David knew that God judged all sinners righteously was the fact that David did not take matters into his own hands. Guys, and that's key. If we in our minds are laying up at night figuring out how we're going to fix this and what we're going to do when we find ourselves in these kinds of situations, then we don't believe this truth about God, that he judges righteously and that he'll take care of the situation as he sees fit. David did not take matters into his own hands. He didn't rise up these men to come against Saul. He didn't take the opportunity to kill Saul when he had so. And I think it's true for us is that, is that when we trust in the fact that God is a righteous judge, then we're not going to take matters into our own hands. Even if we feel, verse 2, like we're going to be torn apart as a result of what's going on because of the accusations that's been made. And so in what happens is we'll just let God deal with the things. And so for David, rather than attacking Saul, David um, turned Saul over to God, even though Saul was trying to kill him, even though Saul's men had spoken these lies against him. And so we see David call upon the righteous judgment of God, and David knew that danger was near, and he wanted God to move into action because he felt threatened, because he felt vulnerable. And so he called upon God to rise up, (coughs) to take action. God, I trust you. 
You do what sees fit. But perhaps David also said this because he felt like God was inactive, right? And I think that's all right. God, you're a righteous God. I know you judge sinners righteously. And you know the situation? Lord, rise up. And maybe David felt like that after, I don't, we don't know exactly how long into this years of wandering that David ha- had, had written or sang this song to the Lord. But um, I think we all feel that way because we want God to operate on our time schedule, to take care of things in, a, in, the, in the time frame that we see fit. God, now's a good time. And, and, and we, like David, I think David could, could have felt it, like, like God was not taking action, that God was taking too long to deal with the situation. And, and I think when I look at David and what he went through, I think 10 years is a long time. But even in those 10 years that, that David was fleeing for his life, that he was enduring all these lies and slander, that God was doing a good thing, was he not? God was preparing David to be king of Israel teaching him how to be a sacrificial leader, how to trust in him. And in those times when we think that God's taking too long to deal with the situation, we need to remember that God's doing a good work in us. He's not just letting people get away with their sin. The truth of the matter is, is when we're when we're being falsely accused and, and, and are unjustly suffering as a result of others and what they've said about us, it can seem like God is either doing nothing or he's taking way too long to bring forth his righteous judgment. And I don't know about you, but during those times when God seems active or, or when I feel threatened or vulnerable, I get impatient because I want things to happen immediately. I want to be delivered. I want the resolution to the situation. I want to be free from the suffering. I want to be exonerated as justice is served. But we got to remember this. Ultimately, not only is God doing a good work in us through that process, but God is long-suffering, guys. God's long-suffering. And He's more long-suffering than us. And we must wait for Him to do the work in accordance to His perfect timing. And in His perfect timing, God will judge sinners righteously. Because he's concerned about the other person just like he's concerned about us. And he's working mercifully in their life. And if we don't, if we don't wait patiently for God's perfect time, you know what's going to happen? We're going to be tempted to take things into our own hand. God, I've waited long enough. David could have said it's five years. David could have even said, God, it's, it's long enough, and then twisted it in his own mind that, that God was giving him the opportunity be, to, take, to take Saul out and, be re, and to be set free from the situation that he was in. As a matter of fact, one of David's men at one of the times when David had the opportunity to take Saul's life, one of, the, one of Saul's men actually, or David's men, spoke that to him saying, hey, God's delivered him to you. It's your time. And so we have to be careful to go, is it me or is this the Lord? As we go through this process of waiting, not retaliating as we try to handle the situation, guys, ultimately in a way that seems right to us. And that's never a good thing. I love the Bible. It tells us this very clearly. It's not good. There's a way that seems right to us, but its end is death. Its end is destruction. And so in verse 14, David goes on and he says, Behold, the wicked bring forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He makes a pit 
and dug it out, and he has fallen into the ditch which he has made. His trouble shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. I, David says, will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. Now that might not be what we expect to read here in verse 17, and I'll get to that in a moment, but he says, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And in these last verses, David closes this song or this psalm of, of song and points out how sinners, guys, are lastly and, 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 and always judged by their own sin. They're judged by their own sin. And when you look at the life of Saul and his demise, man, it's a clear example of the truth of, of what we read here. They are, they are judged by their own sin. And to illustrate this, David uses this imagery of pregnancy, really, saying in verse 14, look, he says, the wicked brings forth iniquity, simply meaning they bring forth evil, and, and as a result, they conceive trouble. There's a conception that takes place. There's an impregnation that takes place. And this image of sin being conceived um, like pregnancy, if you will, is found all throughout Scripture in passages in the Old Testament like Isaiah chapter 59, verse 4. And Isaiah is speaking to the children of Israel about their own sin and their own rebellion against God and how judgment is coming. And he says this, no one calls for justice, no one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. And then in the New Testament, probably one of the most familiar passages of Scripture that deal with this idea of sin and conception and being like a pregnancy, it says, when tempted, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, he says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, his, when, when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And after desire is conceived, right, it gives birth to sin. And what's the result of that? It says, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Judged by sin. And so when we consider sin and what it gives birth to, I think there's some things that we can consider. And in light of these passages and others like it, we, we see that when we enter into temptation, sin is conceived and it will eventually give birth to something that will grow up and destroy us. And the same truth, the same truth is, is also explained um, throughout Scripture with an additional imagery, the imagery of planting a seed, Right? A seed that will, will be sowed and it will sprout and it will grow up and it's going to produce fruit. And in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 8, is one of these passages that says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And I love that analogy um, of, of sin or, or, or sowing seed because it's not just seeds to unrighteousness. It's not just seeds of sin that can be sown. It can be, sin, it can be seeds of righteousness. It's, it's one or the other. And they're, they're going to produce two completely different results. 
One will be death, but the other will be life. Go read, go, go read Hosea. Hosea talks about that as well. Sowing seeds of righteousness. And so when we consider sin and what it gives birth to and what kind of fruit it will produce, we see this, that there's this divine, there's this work of divine retribution that is in this world, right? There's this work of divine retribution in this world, and nobody can escape it as all sinners are judged by their sin. Our sin will find us out. And when we consider the historical, this historical account of King Saul, like I was mentioning earlier, and, and David that's re- recorded throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we see that, that Saul's sinfulness and Saul's rebellious ways eventually caught up to him. There was this battle between him and the, the Philistines. And, and according to, to 1 Samuel chapter 15, we know that God had abandoned King Saul. Literally what that means is God had turned Saul over to his sinfulness. God removed his hand of blessing from him. He gave him and left him to his own ways. And even though Saul wanted to kill David, we know from what we read at the end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31 that Saul, who had lost his mind by this time, he ended up losing everything when he was struck by an arrow in battle and then ultimately proceeded to take his own life by falling on his own sword, the sword by which he wanted to kill David with. And so sinners will be judged by their own sin. The wicked conceive trouble, David writes, and brings forth falsehoods, but he's going to fall into the ditch. In other words, the very ditch or pit that has been dug for you, that the person has wanted to catch you up in, God says that this, this, this law of divine retribution that is attached to sin, that that person is going to end up being caught in their own snare. What has been devised, the trouble, he says, that has been devised for them or has, that they've devised shall return upon their own head, their own crowd. And with this final thought, guys, I want to look at verse 17. I want to point out, because we, we went through this when we looked at the book of Revelation. In, in Revelation chapter 16, we see it. And then also in Revelation chapter 19, when, when, when people and the angels are giving praise to God with the judgment that's being poured upon on this earth, we see that David closes this psalm in verse 17 with this voice of praise to the Lord. But listen, once again, just like what we see in the book of Revelation, it's not because sinners have been judged. It's not like people are going, yeah, they finally got what they deserved. And that's a reminder for us because we can be like that. (laughs) Yeah, I tried to get me, but you got yourself. (laughs) I knew it. We're just waiting on God. (laughs) That's that's not it. That's not why David's praising the Lord. He's, He's not praising the Lord because sinners have been judged. He's praising the Lord. He's given glory to God because the righteousness of God has been magnified through God's judgment. The righteousness of God is revealed. The holiness of God is revealed. And that's what we see also in the book of Revelation over and over. Righteous and true are your judgments, O God, they say. And the fact that that people are, 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 are ensnared by their own sins and ultimately ultimately judged, it should not bring any kind of joy to the hearts of believers because this is not something that God rejoices in. God does not rejoice in these things. But like David, though, we shall give praise. We should give praise and glory 
to God for His righteousness and because He is a holy God who justly judges sin. The worship team wants to come up. I want to conclude with this, with that in mind, because people read things like this. Unbelievers, and maybe even us this morning, read about the judgments of God, and we can somehow conclude that God's unloving. But a loving God is a just God. And I want to conclude by reminding us this. We have the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, and we have to read them together. And what we know is that God had prepared, and God had planned, and God brought forth His plan by bringing His Son to die for the sins of the world. Ultimately, right? All sin and all unrighteousness, God gave His own Son to die for the sins of the world so that He might uphold His own holy law and in the same time offer mercy and grace to anyone who will believe. And many people today, guys, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm right. Many people today don't like the way God's running things. People don't like the way God's running, running his universe. But as the famous writer and poet uh, Dorothy Sayers uh, said, in, in she, she wrote these letters to a post-Christian world. This was 1969. It blows my mind. Okay, Letters to a post-Christian world in 1969. This famous author and poet, Dorothy Sayers. She said this. She said, for whatever reason God to choose, for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited, suffering, and subject to the sorrows of death, he, God, had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. And we know that to be true by Jesus' death on the cross where the law was fulfilled, the judgment was, 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 was poured out upon Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, the debt that we owed, the judgment that we deserved was taken and we were given mercy and grace and forgiveness for all of us who will believe. Father, we thank you, God. You are a righteous judge. We thank you, God, that um, you set us free from sin so that we can live free in you. We can have victory over the sin that used to so easily ensnare us. And God, as we think about these judgments that David spoke of, whether it's in the context of, of, of people speaking lies uh, and, and wrongly judging us, or Lord, when we wrongly judge others, or your righteous judgments, or how we're called to um, judge ourselves, Lord, to examine ourselves, or the fact that that when we sin, sin will find us out. There is discipline. There are consequences. Lord, whenever we consider these things this morning, Lord, wherever we're at and whatever we're going through, I pray, God, that we would turn to you. Lord, that we would not try to handle any of these things on our own. God, that we remember that you have great love for us and that ultimately, Lord, even if we're, if we're guilty, which we are, <laughs> In some way, in, in some fashion, in all these instances, Lord, we're, we're guilty and we deserve um, what you don't give us. And um, we, we don't deserve what you have given us, Lord, your son Jesus. But Lord, we understand that you love us and that your grace is here for us. And Lord, when we realize that um, truly in our hearts, 
Lord, I pray that we would be those who are willing to show grace and mercy and forgiveness to those around us. Lord, that we be reminded of the fact that you've called us to love you and to love others in the same way that you've loved us. Lord, help us to trust you like David trusted you in this psalm. Help us to give praise to you, Lord, when we see your righteous judgments that reveals to us the type of God that you are. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.